appreciated very much the special music, very beautiful rendition, and also very much enjoyed and appreciated all the service that went into last night, making the night to be much remembered or night to be much observed. A very special dinner. We uh, shared it with many brethren at headquarters and really enjoyed that. And from what I've heard visiting with um, many of you, you all had very memorable and spiritually uplifting evenings, and I know that pleases God very much. Brethren, we know that about 3,500 years ago, our spiritual forefathers, ancient Israel, were called out of Egypt by God. And we know the story. We know that they were called out of spiritual bondage, spiritual sin, and also physical bondage and physical sin. And we understand the parallel that we have been called out of spiritual Egypt as well. Now, after the Exodus, after the Passover, and after the Days of Unleavened Bread, they came to Mount Sinai. And there they voluntarily affirmed their covenant with the Creator God. Now, we, for those of us who are baptized recently, two nights ago, we reaffirmed our covenant with our Lord and the Creator God. We voluntarily did that. We answered God's call to come out of spiritual sin, spiritual bondage. And then we partook in a sober, solemn, but yet very encouraging ceremony where we washed each other's feet. We read from the Scriptures about Christ's arrest, His prayer, and His arrest, His dinner with His disciples, and what He went through. We partook of the unleavened bread, which symbolizes His body, as well as righteousness. And we partook of the blood, which sim- the, the wine, which symbolizes His blood, which was shed for our sins, without which we have no hope. We voluntarily reaffirmed our commitment to our covenant with the Creator God. Let's turn back to Exodus 24, and let's notice... <clears throat> the account of Israel going up to Mount Sinai and affirming their covenant with the Lord God, the same being, the same great deity that we reaffirmed our covenant with two nights ago. The same great God who created the heavens and the earth that we worship today. And as we go through these seven days of unleavened bread, that we will meditate on and think about our relationship with this great God, the creator of the entire universe. It's the same God. Exodus chapter 24, we're going to read much of this chapter. Exodus 24, verse 1. Now He, and this is Christ, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, the, the Word, He said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Why did the seventy elders accompany Moses and Aaron? There's a reason for that. Verse 2, And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. Verse 3, So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. Now remember, this is after the Passover. 
after they were called out of Egypt, they came out with a high hand. They came out rejoicing. They saw God's mighty intervention in their lives, as we've seen in ours. And so, the people answered Moses in verse 3, All the words which the Lord has said, we will do. We will do. They confirmed their commitment to the Lord. We have reaffirmed our commitment to the Lord. And we do that daily. <clears throat> we do that daily, but we observe the Passover once a year. And we go through and enjoy and rejoice in and observe the Days of Unleavened Bread once a year. And we reaffirm our commitment to the same Lord God who brought Israel out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who brought us, us out of spiritual Egypt with a mighty hand. <clears throat> Verses 4 and 5 discuss Moses writing the words of the Lord and he goes early in the morning and builds an altar at the foot of the mountain and he builds 12 pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Why the 70 elders? Why the 12 pillars? Verse 5, Then he sent young men of children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins, verse 6, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Verse 7, Then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people. And the people again said, All that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. They affirmed their covenant with the great Creator of the heavens and the earth. That same God who emptied Himself 2,000 years ago lived a perfect life on this earth and then died for our sins. They said that they would surrender their will to God. They said that they would accept God's laws and that they would obey God's laws. But more than just the Ten Commandments, more than just the statutes, more than just the ordinances, they said, all that you have said, we will do all. We're going to talk about the heart to do. The heart to do. You see, Israel said that they would do all that God instructed them, but we know they didn't. And we can do better. We can do better. And there's a reason we can. But we need the heart to do. The title of the sermon is simply that, The Heart to Do. But what is it that we are to do? Is it just keep the Ten Commandments? We'll read about those who preceded us who kept the Ten Commandments, and Christ was incredibly angry with them because they lacked the heart that He was looking for. We will read a little bit about our spiritual predecessors, the church in the wilderness, who claimed that they would do all that God instructed, but they lacked the heart. They lacked the heart. They were not surrendered to God. And we'll draw some parallels to us today. You see, this great God who spoke to Moses at Sinai, we'll read about Him. This great God who struck a covenant with ancient Israel, the church in the wilderness. 
He has called us out of the world. He has struck a covenant with us. We know God the Father calls, but they are one. And He struck a covenant with us. Do we have the heart to do all that He has instructed us to do? Or do we go through the motions? We'll talk about the heart to do. It takes surrender. Dr. Meredith talks about surrender very often. In one of the recent issues of the Tomorrow's World magazine, the May-June 2012 Tomorrow's World magazine, he wrote the following. It's a question. He wrote the following. Have you surrendered to God? A genuine Christian... Now, we just partook of the symbols of what a genuine Christian should be about doing. Eating in of righteousness. You know, accepting Christ's sacrifice. Being humble before God and being humble before our brothers and sisters. The foot washing service is about humility. That's a lot of of imagery that helps to remind us what genuine Christianity is about. So Dr. Meredith writes, Have you surrendered to God? A genuine Christian must remember that he is not his own. He is not his own. You know, we washed each other's feet because we are commanded to do so. It's an act of service, of humility. Continuing, Dr. Meredith writes, He is bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. So it naturally, naturally follows that he will strive to obey God fully. A true Christian knows that Christ really is his Lord, his actual boss. This is the attitude God is looking for. Total surrender to him. This is the attitude that will show God that unlike unfaithful Satan and his disobedient demons, you and I will always be loyal, having active faith to do what God says. The attitude Dr. Meredith is writing about there is total surrender. Did ancient Israel have that attitude of total surrender? We we know they didn't. We know they didn't. So we're going to talk a little bit about that attitude of total surrender today. We're going to ask ourselves, as we go through these seven days of unleavened bread, are we surrendering ourselves to that great God who created the heavens and the earth, who laid down His life for us 2,000 years ago? Have we surrendered to Jesus Christ? Have we surrendered to Jesus Christ? You know, in the professing Christian world, they'll ask sometimes, you know, have you surrendered your heart to the Lord? It's a very has a Protestant tone to it, doesn't it? Well, have you surrendered your heart to the Lord? Let's see what the Scriptures command us to do. You see, ancient Israel did not surrender their heart to the Lord. And so he dealt with them and dealt with them and dealt with them. And we'll read about that. But first, let's review who this great God is who emptied Himself and became our Passover. Let's turn to the beginning, John chapter 1. You all know, of course, that this is the account of the earliest period in in history, even before there was a sun or stars or moon or time. John chapter 1 is the beginning John 1, one. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
Christ was there from the very beginning. He was not created. He and God were one. And He submitted Himself to the Father so they could be in perfect harmony. Verses 3 and 4, all things that were made were made through Him, speaking of Christ, and without Him nothing was made that was made. This is that great God who worked with Israel and brought them out of Egypt. This is that great God who was slain from the foundation of the world. That Passover decision was made before you and I were born, before Moses was born, before Adam and Eve were born. This God here, the Logos, let's turn to Revelation 13, verse 8, decided before even time began, Revelation 13, 8, that He would become the Lamb for the sins of the world. There was a plan that He and the Father were putting in place. They thought it through. Revelation 13, 8. And this is the ultimate act of love and sacrifice and humility. The humility of the stake or the cross, which we'll read about later in the sermon. Revelation 13, verse 8. Speaking of the future, all who dwell on the earth will worship Him, will worship Christ at one point in the future after His return, whose names have not been written in the book of life, uh, slain from the foundation of the world. Uh, The book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Christ, the Lamb, the Logos, the being that we read about in John 1.1, the decision was that He would be slain even before the first man and woman walked the face of the earth. This is the God who we worship. Let's turn to Colossians 1. Colossians 1, verse 15. Paul speaks of Jesus Christ and His awesome power and position as God. Colossians 1, verse 15. He is the, invi- he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. He is the perfect image of the invisible God. The apostles and thousands and likely tens and tens of thousands of people saw Jesus 2,000 years ago. Now, not in the full glory that He possesses when He's in His divine state, but they saw Him walk the earth. And His character is the image of God's character. He is the perfect image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all, the, over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through Him and for Him. Through Him and for Him. Through Him because they were created by the Father's will, and Christ's action and for Him because He rules over all under the Father. This is the Lamb of God. This is the great Being, the great Deity who called Moses and then brought Israel out of Egypt, who thundered the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai, who came what was it, 1,500 years later and emptied Himself and lived and died for our sins. This is the God who we serve. This is the God that works in our lives today to bring us to perfection. 
Let's just turn a few chapters uh, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. 1 Corinthians 10.1, just to further reinforce that point. 1 Corinthians 10.1. You see, we don't worship a little baby in a manger, a little helpless baby in a manger. We worship and we are the servants of the Most High God. The Most High God. But the most humble and kind and patient being that there ever was. That's who we worship. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, Paul writes, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. They received God's instructions through Christ, And through Moses, Christ's servant, his friend, we'll read more about their interaction with each other. They all were called out of Egypt. They all went through that symbolic baptism through the Red Sea. All drank that same spiritual drink. Verse 4, they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. And their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Why was God not well pleased? Why was God not, God not well pleased with ancient Israel? You know, there's a superficial answer that we all know. We're going to hopefully consider the deeper reasons for why God was not well pleased. And we're going to hopefully examine ourselves today. They're the superficial reasons God was not well pleased. Yes, they made the golden calf, we'll read about that, and they, went, they rebelled and murmured and stole idols and broke God's Sabbath. Well, those were horrible things. But there were deeper reasons God was not well pleased. We'll consider that today in the sermon. Let's discuss a little bit the covenant that we're under today. We're not under the old covenant. We're under a new and better covenant. We can be thankful for that. And this begins to give us some of the reasons. This sort of begins to guide us and help us to understand why we are blessed today, even more so than ancient Israel was blessed, because we are under a better covenant, as Hebrews states. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 8. The same God that brought Israel out of Egypt, the same God that thundered the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai, who spoke with Moses face to face, who scattered the bodies of the Israelites in the wilderness, who was very displeased with them a number of times for a very specific and particular reason. Yes, we know the superficial reason. We know that they committed idolatry. We all know that. But there was a deeper reason. They didn't have the heart Brethren, they didn't have the heart. That God, He's our God, and He mediates a new and better covenant. Hebrews chapter 8, what a blessing it is that we are under that new and better covenant. But let's discuss that new and better covenant and understand it. It's review, I know, but let's review it. Hebrews chapter 8, 
beginning in verse 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry. Who is this speaking of? This is speaking of the Word, the Logos, Christ, the Creator of everything. Everything was created by Him and for Him. He has obtained a more excellent ministry. Why? Why is it more excellent? Well, the answer is right there in verse 6. And as much as He is also mediator of a better covenant. Why is it a better covenant? The answer is again right there in verse 6. Which was established on better promises. Better promises. It doesn't say it was established on different laws. It doesn't say it was established on different laws. It says it was established on better promises. We know <clears throat> verses 7 and 8, I won't take too much time with these, passages, these verses, but they're very important. We know that the first covenant had a fault, but the fault was not with the law. It doesn't say it was with the law. It surely wasn't with the mediator. It was with the people. Remember those people who said, all that you say we will do? We read about them. Exodus 24, we read about them. All that you say to do, we will do. Did they do? Well, we know they didn't. Why? Why? They didn't have the heart to do. Why didn't they have the heart? Verse 8, because finding fault with them, the people, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And this, of course, is a prophecy that is beginning to be fulfilled with us, the spiritual house of Israel, the church, the New Testament church. We are partakers of these better terms, these better promises, because we can have the Holy Spirit in us. But we know that this prophecy will be ultimately fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And we pray that that day comes soon. There was no fault with the law. There was no fault with the mediator. You see, a covenant requires three things. It requires two participants or more and terms. Well, one of the participants was God. No fault with Him. The terms were without fault. The fault was with the people. They didn't have the heart to do. We're going to talk about the heart to do. Moving forward about... 1,500 years from Exodus 24, we come to Matthew 23. Let's turn to Matthew 23. Here we have that same God, the Word, the Logos, who struck dead the firstborn of Egypt, who opened the Red Sea, who was the pillar of fire, who was that rock, who thundered the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai, and here he is in human form in Matthew 23. And he's talking to the he's talking to the the progeny, the uh, descendants of those ancient Israelites who were stiff-necked and hard-hearted 1500 years ago. Same God, same people, at this time same covenant. Matthew 23 
What does he tell these descendants of those ancient, stubborn, stiff-necked Israelites? Matthew 23, verse 27. He calls them hypocrites. He says they are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and uncleanliness and filthiness. That's what he thought of those Pharisees who kept the law, kept the holy days, kept the dietary laws, the food laws. Now, they should have done those things. We should keep God's law. What was wrong? What was missing? They had a hard heart. Just like their ancestors. They had a hard heart. You know, Jesus Christ hates a hard heart. Let's turn to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. We cannot keep the Passover, which we've already observed, or the Days of Unleavened Bread properly or right before God with hard hearts. We can eat unleavened bread every day. We can pray every day. But if we don't have soft humble, meek, kind hearts. He says we're whitewashed tombs. We're no better than the spiritual than our spiritual predecessors, ancient Israel, who he destroyed with the serpents. Mark chapter 3, verse 1. Why was Christ angered here? Mark 3 verse 1. He entered the synagogue again and a man was there with a withered hand. This man wanted to be healed. You know, we'll pray and anoint you if you're sick on the Sabbath before or after Sabbath services, won't we? And so this man, he went to the equivalent of Sabbath services. It was, you know, in the synagogue. And he wanted to be healed. And they watched him these descendants of those ancient Israelites who were so righteous in their own eyes. They kept God's law. They kept the Sabbath and the holy days. But they had hard hearts. And they watched Him closely whether they, that He would heal on the Sabbath or not so that they might accuse Him. Then He said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward and He said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? to save life or to kill it, but they kept silent. So when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved with the hardness of their hearts, the same attitude he dealt with in the wilderness, the same attitude he dealt with when Israel turned from Him over and over and over. Hard hearts. And these were, of course, again, the descendants of those who in the wilderness said, we'll accept the terms of your covenant. All you say to do, we will do. We will worship you and fear you. 
We will love you and love your law. It's not just about the Ten Commandments, as we'll see. It's about being humble before the great Creator God. The God who came and healed this man 2,000 years ago on the Sabbath because of His compassion, His mercy, His kindness. We're better than these Pharisees, I believe, but not because of us. It's because we have the Holy Spirit in us. But it's the heart, brethren, the heart that must be deleavened. It's the heart that must take in unleavened bread of righteousness and humility. It's the heart which must want to do God's will in every way in our lives. It must not hold on to any crumbs of leaven. It must not just go through the motions. The Pharisees went through the motions and He was angry with them. Why? Because of the hardness of their heart. They knew better. You know, mercy and kindness, these are not New Testament concepts. Let's turn back to Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66. For 6,000 years, brethren, Christ, the Word, the Logos, that great God who created all, He's been working with us little little specks of dirt on a little speck of dirt in that vast universe. Isaiah 66. And He's wanted us to learn to have humble hearts. Humble hearts. To just do what He asks. That's it. Just do what He asks. And it's about a lot more than just the Sabbath and the holy days. Those we must do. You know, he told the Pharisees, you tithe of your mint and your anise and your cumin. You know, you keep the law and that you should have done. But you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice and mercy and faith. And those were not New Testament concepts. Isaiah 66, verse 2, For all these things my hand has made. This is Christ. This is Jesus speaking before He became you know, a human being 2,000 years ago. Same deity, same great mind. All these things my hand has made. All these things exist. But on this one will I look. On who, Him who is poor, humble, of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at My Word. Trembles at My Word. All of God's Word, from Genesis to Revelation, is for our instruction. We are to keep the law. We do keep the law. We love the law. It is our meditation. But there's more to the days of unleavened bread than just keeping the holy days and keeping the Sabbath and abstaining from murder, abstaining from taking God's name in vain abstaining from fornication or adultery. There's more to it than that. God wants us to be creating, He wants to be creating within us humble hearts. Let's notice back in Psalm 37. Psalm 37. Again, brethren, the same God of the Old Testament spoke these words. He's the same God that came and emptied Himself and became Jesus Christ. 
His mind does not change, as Hebrews 13.8 reminds us. His mind does not change. Psalm 37. Notice in verse 11. What is God looking for? Who does He want to spend the rest of eternity with, brethren? Yes, He wants us to keep and love His law. But notice here in Psalm 37, verse 11, He wants us to have some particular characteristic, doesn't He, in our heart? Meekness. Humility. Kindness. Compassion. The meek shall inherit the earth. Of course, He repeats that. We won't turn there to Matthew 5.5. Again, the meek will inherit the earth. Now, this does not do away with the law or the statutes or the ordinances. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5. But all of our observance of God's law, which is good and is a shield and a hedge around us, it's nothing more than us being Pharisees if we don't have humble, teachable, contrite hearts. The Pharisees kept God's law. And as we've already seen, God was angry with them. Matthew 5, verse 17. We know that God's law is good. We know that Christ did not come to do away with it. He says, I do not, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy it, but to magnify it, to fulfill it, to show us how to fully live according to God's law. In verses 18 and 19, you know, the entire heavens and earth could, would have to pass away before His law would pass away. He did not come to destroy the law. But He came to show us how to live according to the law. He magnified the law. The Old Covenant does not contradict the New Covenant. The Old Covenant was a precursor for the New, but there was something lacking. And it was the general availability of the Holy Spirit for the people. We today, brethren, we have the benefit of having the Holy Spirit in us if, we're, if we are repentant and baptized, have had hands laid upon us. And so because of that, we can have humble and soft hearts. And because of that, the law can be magnified. You see, Christ came to magnify the law. But it isn't just His job to magnify the law. It's our job to magnify the law as well. We magnify the law when we live according to the law, but when we live in a way that's humble and kind and meek, like Christ was, according to His example. When Isaiah talks about this. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah 42. There's a prophecy that points to Christ's first coming and the time which we live in today when the law would be magnified, just as we read about in Matthew 5. Isaiah 42 and verse 21. Notice what's recorded here. It's a prophecy about our time. It's a prophecy about the time when Christ came and 
the law could be magnified. Of course, as with many of these types of prophecies, this prophecy will be fully fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Isaiah 42, verse 21. The Lord is well pleased for His righteousness' sake. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. Christ came to magnify the law. If He lives in us, then we will magnify the law. But He won't live in us if we don't have humble hearts. We can say as the Israelites said in Exodus 24, all that you say to do, we'll do. But if we're not truly humble, if we don't understand one of the deep meanings of the days of unleavened bread, that we are to put in humility, that's one of the things pictured by eating the unleavened bread. You know, it's that flat, unleavened, crispy bread. It's not puffed up. It's humble and thin. If we don't think about humility, if we don't ask ourselves, are we humble, are we teachable, then we don't glorify God. We don't magnify the law. We're no better than the Pharisees whom He was angry with because they had hard hearts. And again, we know we have to keep the commandments. We know that this is not, that the new covenant is not just about you know, grace only or faith only or you know, just loving the Lord only. We know that we have to keep the commandments. We won't turn to it, but 1 John 2.4 says, if we don't keep the commandments, we are liars. And the truth is not in us. 1 John 2.4 We know we must keep God's law. We know we must keep the holy days and the Sabbath holy. But there's more to it than just that. We must have humble hearts. Let's turn back to Exodus chapter 12 and notice one of the instructions given to us during the Days of Unleavened Bread or for the Days of Unleavened Bread. And let's ask ourselves as we notice this brief passage, let's ask ourselves why. Why the symbolism? Why the following instruction? Ancient Israel told Moses and answered the Lord, all that you say we will do. There were twelve pillars of stone built to commemorate that and to bind and represent the twelve tribes of Israel, all of the church in the wilderness. There were the seventy elders who accompanied Moses and Aaron up to the mountain. They did not go all the way. Well, actually, at, at one point they were up by the Lord. We'll read about that. But those 70 elders were there. Why were they there? They were the elders of ancient Israel, the church in the wilderness. They were there as representatives of all of the church in the wilderness. The entire church in the wilderness was being bound to that covenant. Was being bound to the terms and conditions that God wanted them to live by. And they said, we'll do it. We'll do it. But they didn't. Here we have the institution of the Passover. Exodus chapter 12. This month shall be the beginning of months. Verse 2. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Verse 3. 
speak to the congregation of Israel saying, On the tenth day of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of, of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, then you will share it with your neighbor. A lamb without blemish, about a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Verse 5. You shall keep it until the fourteenth day. You'll get to know that lamb. Build a relationship with that lamb. That lamb, of course, as we know, pictured Christ. And then you slaughter the lamb at twilight. Verse 6. Verse 7. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house where they eat it. They shall eat the flesh at night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat it raw nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire. Do not let any of it remain, verse 10. And thus you shall eat it with your belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet. Here we have the institution of the Passover. We skip down a few verses. We come to verse... Let's pick up in verse... 14. So this day shall be to you a memorial. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. And come to verse 15. The institution of the days of unleavened bread. And notice there's a command here. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. Why? Why? There's nothing magical about the bread. Why do we eat unleavened bread? It pictures righteousness, but it pictures humility. It pictures humility. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from all, shall be cut off from Israel. They shall be put to death. Here we have the days of unleavened bread instituted. Why was ancient Israel instructed to eat unleavened bread? You know, God could have instructed them to take some rosemary and make rosemary tea. He could have have implemented any symbol that would have represented, you know, taking in of righteousness. He could have implemented a different symbol. He chose unleavened bread. It pictures humility. It pictures meekness. Why did he instruct ancient Israel to eat unleavened bread all seven days? Because ancient Israel, just like us, needs to be reminded. Reminded every day that we have to take in of Christ. Take in of His instruction, His Word, the Bible. Humility. To work on humility. To work on our hearts. You know, there have been those over the years who, for some reason, will try to come up with complicated reasons to not eat unleavened bread all seven days during the days of unleavened bread. There have been papers written on that. Here's my paper Exodus 12 15, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, period. Will we do what Christ instructs us to do? You see, that attitude of rebelliousness, it still exists. It still exists. 
Why do we fight against the Creator God of the universe who called Israel out of Egypt, who called us out of sin, who died for our sins, who is our judge, who is our mediator? All that He says to do, we should do. But as we know, it's about more than just eating the unleavened bread. But brethren, if we resist in what's clear, why is it we resist? If we resist in what's clear, if we profane any of God's law, we have to ask ourselves, why is it that we do that? The answer is a lack of humility, a lack of fear, a lack of really looking at God as the great, powerful God that He is. And instead, we see ourselves as something more than we are. It's about humility. Do we have the heart to do all that God says to do? The Pharisees went through the motions of keeping God's law, but Jesus Christ was very displeased with them, as we know. I think we're a lot better than the Pharisees. I thank God for that. But it's not because we're good. It's because we have the Holy Spirit in us. And we have Christ in us. But you see, it's about more than just keeping the law. It's about humility, teachability, not being stiff-necked, not being hard-hearted, not being proud of ourselves because we know the truth and the rest of the world doesn't know the truth. When we eat that unleavened bread for these seven days, it should be a reminder that we need to be humble, to have a humble heart. The days of unleavened bread are not only about removing sin, they're also about taking in righteousness, humility, meekness, getting rid of stubbornness, getting rid of our own ideas. Let's turn to Exodus 33. You see, brethren, we can keep the days of unleavened bread and we can keep the Sabbath. We can keep God's law in the letter. But we can still be very offensive to Christ. If we are stiff-necked, if we are hard-hearted, if we are stubborn, if we are proud, Christ will not live in us. If we are stubborn and proud, He will not be with us. We can keep the days of unleavened bread perfectly according to the letter. We can have our house cleaned up and have our food made before sunset Friday night and we can be like the Orthodox Jews and not even turn on our light switch or use a stick to turn on the light switch. And we can miss the mark. We can keep the law to the letter and have Christ far from us. It's about humility. Notice Exodus 33. Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt. He's sending them into the land that He promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's fulfilling that covenant promise that He made with Abraham. 
And notice verse 2. He says, And I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite and the Amorite and the Hittite and the uh, Perizzite and the Hivitite and the Jebusite. Verse 3, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. He was going to fulfill that promise that he made to Abraham. But notice verse 3. Sometimes we skip over this. What does Christ say there to Moses? He says, For I will not go up in your midst. I will not be with you, lest I consume you. Why? Because you are a stiff-necked people. You see, we can keep the law but be stiff-necked. And Christ will desire to consume us. The people heard these grave tidings and they mourned and no one put on His ornaments. Verse 4, they began to humble themselves. Verse 5, for the Lord had said to Moses, say to the children of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. I could come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. So the Israelites were chastised. And Moses intercedes for them. Verse 17. Notice verse 14. This is a good reference showing us the relationship that God and Moses had. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face. Verse 11. As a man speaks to his friend. You know, Moses was considered by God the most righteous, law-abiding. What was, the, what was that word? The most humble. The most humble. And so notice the relationship that Christ had with Moses. Spoke to him face to face because Moses was humble. Notice Christ's attitude about the Israelites. He said, I'm not even going to go with you. My will is to consume you. Because you're stiff-necked. There's a contrast there, brethren. Let's be like Moses, not like the Israelites who were stiff-necked. So Moses intercedes for Israel, verses 13-14. And then in verse 14, Christ says, My presence will go with you. I will give you rest. Verse 17, Then the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace. For you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. Christ relented because of his relationship with Moses. And he had that relationship with Moses, that special relationship. Why? Because Moses had a humble heart. Moses had a humble heart. Do we have humble hearts? Humility is the key. Being humble under God's instruction is the key. And when you read the story from Genesis to Revelation, a big part of what God is trying to get across to humanity is just to be humble. To do what He asks us to do. But it's amazing how people resist and allow pride to puff them up. 
The ancient Israelites, they were proud and stiff-necked. The Pharisees were proud and stiff-necked. Sometimes we can be a little proud and stiff-necked. Even when Jesus Christ hung on the stake, He dealt with that, didn't He? Even when He hung on the stake, He dealt with those who reviled Him. They were proud. They mocked Him. There were two criminals. One on each side of Jesus Christ, weren't there? One reviled Him. One didn't. Let's read the story. Luke 23. Luke 23. Let's notice beginning in verse 35. The people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered. Sneered. They said, He saved others. Let Him save Himself if He is the Christ, the chosen of God. What cruelty. What cruelness of heart. What lack of faith. What meanness. These are those ones that God instructed through Isaiah. You know, I want you to be... You know, He said, I've created the heavens and the earth and the one I'll look on will be one who is humble, contrite, meek. The capacity that we as humans have to be proud... To not be humble, it's astounding. It's astounding. It affected and afflicted our forefathers in the wilderness. It affected and afflicted the Pharisees. It affected and afflicted the Jews and the Romans and the other Israelites around Christ as He was being crucified. It affected and afflicted one of the two criminals. Let's read what he said. Verse 39. Then one of the criminals who was hanged blasphemed him, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. What pride, what hardness of heart to be hanging there dying in the very act of crucifixion and to attack because of a hard heart. That same heart that afflicted and affected ancient Israel before. That mean, hard heart. You know, brethren, all of us have sinned. Romans 3.23. All of us are worthy of death. Romans 6.23. What's our attitude? It's a very sobering and very extreme example. But it goes to the root of the issue. It goes to the root of one of the purposes for the days of unleavened bread. To get, to get humility in and, and pride out. To replace vanity with meekness. To be humble before God. The other criminal answered and rebuked him, saying, 
Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? Notice verse 41. And we indeed justly. You see, both criminals were on the stake justly. They both had sinned. We don't know how long they both had languished in the prison system or the dungeons. But they both were on the stakes justly. Christ was on the stake without cause. Which heart would we hope to have, brethren? Christ went through this so we don't have to. Christ paid the death penalty for us so we don't have to die. And so the one criminal blasphemed him and the other criminal said, do you not even fear God? Look at your heart. Look at your heart. We deserve death. But this man does not deserve death. Both criminals had sinned. What was Christ's response? Verse 42. He said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then Jesus' reply was, Surely I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Why? Because he had a humble heart. He was a sinner. He had sinned. He paid the price. It reminds me of, we won't turn there, but Revelation 2.7 says that to those of the church of Ephesus, if they overcome, they will be with Christ in paradise. Revelation 2.7 Was this a Christian martyr? Maybe this man languished in the dungeons of the Roman prison system for years. Maybe he had repented of those sins that he was guilty of that put him on that stake. But it's very instructive, brethren, that even hanging there dying, it's possible to have a hard heart. Hardness of heart is a pernicious, pernicious problem. Christ dealt with it in the wilderness. He dealt with it with the Pharisees. He dealt with it on the stake. He deals with it with us. He's looking for a soft, humble heart. Are we humble enough, brethren, as we go through these seven days of unleavened bread, to really analyze ourselves and to really get the sin out that we need to remove from our lives? When we see sin, when God reveals sin to us, are we humble enough? Do we fear God enough? Do we respect and thank Him for His sacrifice enough to get that sin out, to remove that sin? Let's turn to James 4, verse 17. James 4, verse 17. As God reveals to us 
where we need to change. As we spend these seven days of unleavened bread, searching ourselves for those little crumbs that are still somewhere in our heart, when we encounter those crumbs, will we have the humility to do what we know we should do? James 4, verse 17. Therefore, to him who knows to do good, and I'll add a couple words here, and does not have the humility to do it. I added those words, but I think you see the point I'm trying to make. For those who know to do good, but don't have the humility to do it, to him it is sent. We have to have humble hearts. Let's not raise our hands, but how many of us, we know we're still holding on to sin, to attitude problems or whatever the sin is. Do we have the humility we need to stop doing what we know we should stop doing? To him who knows to do good and does not do it, it is sin. Proverbs chapter 6. It's about humble hearts, brethren. Humble hearts. Israel said, all that you say to do, we will do. We will do, God. We will do. All that you say to do, we will do. We will obey you, obey your covenant, be your special people. We know that they failed for the most part. We have reaffirmed our commitment to the covenant that we've made with God on the Passover. We're now going through the seven days of unleavened bread, searching ourselves for those little nuggets of pride in our heart. When we encounter them, will we have the humility in our heart to really get rid of those little nuggets of pride? Proverbs chapter 6. There is so much in the Old Testament about meekness and kindness and having a good heart. Proverbs 6, verse 16. Here we read about the seven things that God hates. Proverbs 6, verse 16. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to Him. Verse 17. Pride. Pride. First thing He mentions. Now, does God hate when we break the Sabbath? Yes, God hates when we break the Sabbath. Does God hate when we steal from our tithes and offerings? Yes, God hates when we steal from our tithes and offerings. But it's very instructive. Seven things God hates, and the first He lists is a proud look. A hard heart. Not being willing to take correction or instruction. Number two, a lying tongue. Number three, heads that shed innocent blood. Number four, a heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that are swift and running to evil. A false witness who speaks lies. And notice the last. One who sows discord among the brethren. You know, I believe that those of us who struggle with you know, other sins, it's probably, it's probably easier to, to overcome you know, pick, pick, your, pick your, your, your sin, right? All sin is, is sin. But 
Pride is, is so difficult, brethren. It's something we need to work on. And God says that He hates it just as much as one who sheds innocent blood. Do we have the humility, the heart to get rid of even pride in our lives? You know, the Pharisees were very proud. They kept God's law. They were proud of it. But they weren't kind and humble. They didn't practice forgiveness towards others. They weren't compassionate towards others. Let's turn to Galatians chapter 5. We'll take a look in our concluding few moments at the uh, fruits of the Spirit and just a couple more verses before we, we conclude. Galatians 5. As we commit ourselves to another year of being surrendered to Christ, the Passover and Days of Unleavened Bread, they start us off on a new year. A new year. We have answered God's call and we have said, Yes, Father, all that You say to do, we will do. We will do. So as we embark on this new year, let's begin by asking ourselves, how is our heart? How is our heart? Galatians 5.22 Is our heart humble enough to love unconditionally our brothers and our sisters in the faith? To love unconditionally the truth that God has given us. To love unconditionally the ministry who, whose job is to edify and lift up and exhort. Do we have the humility, the meekness of heart to replace anger with joy? To replace bitterness with joy? Self-seekingness with joy? Are we humble enough to grow in peace? Where there's a lack of humility, there's pride. And where there's pride, there's no peace. Are we humble enough to be long-suffering? Or are we so proud that we, we won't be patient with others? Maybe when they don't live up to what we expect them to live up to. Will we be humble enough to be kind to others? You know, when we're proud, we're not kind. Will we have the heart and the humility to be good? To be faithful? To be gentle? To practice self-control? The new covenant is a better covenant because Christ can live in us. He's the mediator of that better covenant. And these are the fruits of of Him living in us. When we eat unleavened bread these seven days, we're symbolizing taking in of Christ. His righteousness. This is His righteousness. Yes, the Sabbath and the holy days and clean and unclean food and tithing and not taking His name in vain. We, we must do these things. But love, peace, patience, Goodness, gentleness. These are the fruits 
of humility. These are the fruits of having a humble heart. These are the fruits of understanding that without Christ in us, we're no better than the Pharisees. We're no better than the Jews and the Romans who stood around Christ when He was being crucified and mocked Him. We're no better than them without Christ living in us. It's so easy, brethren, to fall into the trap of pride. In the days of unleavened bread, our annual reminder that we must be humble. Only through humility can we have the heart to do all that Christ commands us to do. The Israelites said it again and again. All that you say to do, we will do. But they did not. Because they were stiff-necked, they lacked a humble heart. The most humble being of all came and died for our sins 2,000 years ago. The most humble being of all created the heavens, the earth. He and His Father put in, a place, put in place a plan where He would be the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world and then He would become our elder brother and our mediator and our high priest and He would work with us to draw us into His kingdom. Let's conclude by reading one Scripture about Him. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, verse 12. Paul writes about himself, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do, not, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do. Forgetting these things which are behind and reaching forward to these things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in, Jesus, in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. It's talking about a humble heart, a humble mind. And if anyone or if anything and and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Being willing to say that we will do all that you want us to do. And that includes, brethren, having a humble heart.